Hi there. You're listening to Development Unplugged, hosted by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation. Here we are providing a platform for cutting-edge thinking and debate on global issues and international cooperation. Whether you're a social sciences major, a journalist in pursuit of answers, a program officer brainstorming on that next project, or the CEO of a nonprofit, this is your source for all things international cooperation. I'm your host, Nick Moyer. On this episode, we're talking about climate change financing with Brian Tomlinson, the Executive Director of AidWatch Canada. He's also the author of the 2019 Climate Finance Report, developed for the Canadian Coalition on Climate Change and Development. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about this. Well, it's wonderful to speak to you about this. It's clear there's no denying that climate change is the defining challenge of our time. And we've even heard very recently the Government of Canada has stated again that children and grandchildren will judge this generation by its action or inaction in this area. In order to address climate change, effort and money will be required. Canada has many tools at its disposal to address climate action through international assistance in support of its feminist international assistance policy. Such mechanisms obviously include some that are better known and some lesser known, to name a few, the Green Climate Fund, uh, the Global Environment Facility, and other forms of nationally determined contributions made under the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change that support climate action in poor countries. Canada is one of the top greenhouse gas emitters on the planet in both absolute and per capita terms, certainly can't shy away from this issue and has its fair share of work ahead to contribute to global progress. Now, since 2017, uh, Brian, you've reported on the status of Canada's climate financing initiatives for the Climate for Development Coalition. It's a coalition of international development and environmental organizations that are working together to share knowledge and take concerted action to address climate change. Brian, you've stated that all developed countries, including Canada, have an urgent obligation to heighten their ambition for climate commitments for the coming decade at both the domestic and international levels. Can you begin by explaining what we're facing, especially in developing countries, because of climate change? Yes, I mean, I think you, you've put it uh, quite well that, you know, this is the defining issue of the decade and perhaps of the century. I think, you know, if there's uh, not significant change, particularly in developed countries relating to the production of greenhouse gases, that we face the potential for catastrophic impacts from just the current levels of greenhouse gas and uh, not to mention future production. These uh, impacts will, will be on people's livelihoods, it will be on infrastructure, it will be on health systems and biodiversities. It will be on the ways in which basically um, the human community interacts with, with its environment and, and with its uh, different societies. So these, uh, I think, will be profound. I think, you know, we we've, are on a track now of three degrees warming or more by the end of the century. And so we need to kind of reconsider the ways in which we approach uh, development and, uh, and particularly the sustainability of our, our, of our current approaches. Really, the impact of, of climate change is going to be most deeply affected in the global south. And here we're going to, particularly around a belt around the equator, we're going to be seeing temperature extremes. We're going to be seeing and witnessing and experiencing uh, periods of extended drought, areas of of Africa that perhaps will be unlivable in terms of uh, permanent extreme temperatures. We're looking, excuse me, likely to experience um, 
the movement of tropical diseases into areas of uh, more temperate zones, challenging already uh, fragile health systems. You know, it's quite obvious that we are privileged in Canada and that um, more vulnerable parts of the world are dealing with the most extreme impacts of climate change. Now, we're going to be talking about climate finance, and you've put together a, a report looking at uh, Canada's performance in that respect. But before we go there, can you give us a, you know, a, a quick summary of what are we talking about when we talk about climate finance? The notion of climate finance is the transfer of resources from um, the developed countries, the rich countries, uh, but all providers who are providers of, of development cooperation, transfer of resources to uh, developing countries who face climate challenges. So these resources are directed to mitigation, which is uh, activities that try to mitigate the production of greenhouse gases. So they may be solar farms, wind farms, uh, and that uh, of that order. And then also it's directed to adaptation, which is activities that help people change the way in which they conduct agriculture or their health systems so that they're more resilient to the impacts that are inevitable from the climate emergency. We also talk about uh, money for loss and damage. And this is money, at this point, it's not been uh, determined to what level, but this is money that will be needed for developing countries who face extreme climate events, such as tropical storms, and et cetera, that will need to be able to recover from those and will need finance from those for that purpose. So combined, this is the general area of climate finance. And it's quite obvious, uh, even from your description, that when we talk about climate finance, we're talking about the intersections of climate change, uh, responding to it, and uh, international development, which I think sort of leads me into the, the next question I have for you. We, you know, Canada launched uh, in 2017 its Feminist International Assistance Policy, which uh, includes uh, a set of priorities for Canada's international climate finance. And so... I wonder, can you tell us a little bit about how important it is for Canada to align its climate finance funding with the objectives set out in the Feminist International Assistance Policy? Well, I think it's vital. I think we all welcome the Feminist International Assistance Policy. The focus on, on gender equality and women's empowerment is vital for development transformation around the world, and, and no less so for, for those uh, activities that will address the climate emergency. Climate finance is already referenced in the Feminist International Assistance Policy. And in uh, just this past year, the government published its action plans relating to, to that policy, one of which relates to environment and, and climate action. And this action plan, I think, quite rightly highlights the vulnerability of women and girls to these impacts that we just described around climate change. So, you know, the question of unequal access to productive resources in such areas as agriculture will affect food security, but women and girls play vital roles in agriculture. The gender division of labor that uh, relate to the collection of water, food security, fuel, gender gaps in employment, access to health services, all of these areas are, are going to be profoundly affected by climate change. So it's vital that our feminist international assistance policy fully integrates climate uh, issues and vulnerabilities in its, uh, in its strategies. And, and the action plan, you know, I think quite rightly and quite well does that. I think one of the, the concerns that I have about it is 
the seeming big disconnect between a well-articulated action plan and any real public assessment on the gender impacts of our current investments in climate finance or, in, in, to be frank, in other areas as well. And, and a guarantee that the action plan will actually lead to real assessment of our priorities, our finance priorities uh, in this area. I mean, I think it's also important to recognize that informally, uh, Canada plays roles that are sometimes invisible. So, for example, on the Green Climate Fund, which is a very important fund that you mentioned up front for climate finance, Canada has actually led a process there to develop gender equality policies so that uh, all of the allocations of this fund can be assessed in those terms. So I think it's not only the, the numbers that count here in terms of the feminist international assistance policy, it's actually roles that uh, officials generally play in other international fora that uh, can be an important dimension of this response as well. Uh, you speak to an important way that Canada can show leadership um, in the climate finance world and uh, by bringing its its commitments to advancing gender equality around the world and Certainly, it's something we hope will continue to be a, a, an anchoring uh, component of, of Canada's contributions. Now, let's get into the substance of it. I mean, how much money is Canada currently providing to address and mitigate climate change? How are those funds being used today? I think the starting point is the global commitment that all countries, the international community, uh, made in Copenhagen in 2009 to uh, raise and disperse at least $100 billion in climate finance by 2020 to the countries in the global south. So this is the overarching commitment that was renewed in 2015 with the Paris Climate Agreement uh, that uh, we often uh, reference in terms of current commitments to climate finance, and also greenhouse gas uh, remissions. And this target of $100 billion was extended to be an annual commitment up to 2025. So that's the global context in which we have to understand Canada's uh, commitment. Canada, in in 2015, the Prime Minister committed $2.65 billion for climate finance between 2015 and 2020. So it's a a five-year commitment period. And he also uh, reiterated that by 2020, Canada will be allocating, dispersing at least $800 million in annual climate finance. So that $100 billion that the global community has targeted for 2020 as the annual disbursements, Canada has said that it will reach $800 million in climate finance by that year. If you look at the $2.65 billion, the five-year period that we committed, we have currently spent $1.7 billion. So we still have about um, a quarter of it to allocate, $900 million. This will be done uh, before March 31st, 2021. So, you know, I think we're well on track to disperse that $2.65 billion. I would think that we're probably less on track around the target of $800 million disbursements by 2020. My best estimate is that in 2017, we were only dispersing about half that amount, $400 million. 
So there is some effort that's going to be required, I think, to reach the annual disbursement figure of, of $800 million. Now, where has this money gone? Principally, the, the money has been dispersed to multilateral institutions and funds for mitigation and adaptation. So 97%, almost all of it, has, has gone to uh, those types of funds. So we talked about the Green Climate Fund. So we've allocated $300 million, and then we just renewed that allocation last year of another $300 million to the Green Climate Fund. The Green Climate Fund is a very important part of, of, this, uh, of this puzzle because the Green Climate Fund is a fund that has been created by the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change that you mentioned at the front end. So this is the official channel for all countries to allocate money to climate finance. But there are, as in development finance, many channels through which climate finance has been allocated, and Canada has contributed to many of them. You know, the adapt, there's an adaptation fund that focuses just on adaptation. There's a least developed countries fund that channels money directly to least developed countries for these purposes. And there are many others. But what is significant about the way Canada has allocated its money to the multilateral system is that it has allocated at least two-thirds, 64%, to special funds in the multilateral development banks. So these funds are housed in the Asia Development Bank, in the Inter-American Development Bank, and at the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank. So these are funds that Canada creates, co-manages with the banks. We give a grant to those funds, but then the funds loan money to the private sector for climate purposes. But the overwhelming attention that we've put to these types of funds for our climate finance, I think is actually unique among all the donors. Nobody has given that degree of priority to multilateral banks as the main channel. And I think it does affect, you know, the ways in which this money then is allocated against what I would call, for lack of a better word, uh, international climate justice. So here we're looking at is Canada living up to its obligations to those who are least responsible for the direct um, cause of climate uh, change, but are struggling with poverty and equality and all the, the all the dimensions of under of least least development um, in order to be able to respond? And there we look at you know to what degree is this money going to least developed countries? Our best estimate is that about a third of Canada's money is going to least developed countries. How much is going to adaptation? Because that's the main preoccupation of, of poor countries because they don't actually produce that much greenhouse gas emissions. So looking at adaptation in, in for Canada, only a third, again, 32% is going to those purposes. Sub-Saharan Africa, an important region where we mentioned a while ago where many of these impacts are going to be felt quite profoundly, less than a third of Canada's money for climate finance is going to Sub-Saharan Africa. And then finally, the balance between loans and grants in our climate finance. 
as I say, there is a role for, for loans with the private sector, and, and we are doing that uh, in, in large spades through the multilateral development banks. But if you look at it from a justice point of view, should developing countries, even moderately uh, well-off developing countries, middle-income countries, be compelled to pay back loans to the developed countries, to Canada, for uh, conditions that they had no role in creating in the first place. I think this is a different dimension than, than just looking at loans for development purposes. And these changes that we're talking about are permanent. They're not going to go away. I mean, that's what makes this a unique emergency. And so by tying developing countries up in increasing amounts of, of loans, compounding a debt crisis that is actually emerging again, we, I think, are putting those who are, again, least able to respond in a very difficult position. So, I mean, I think, you know, what we're looking for in terms of the future is a, a much more substantive approach in our finance to adaptation uh, and to uh, and directed to those poorest countries, regions, and peoples that face the most dire impacts. I don't think we're there yet by a long stretch, and I think we need to actually examine our experience with the $2.65 billion in trying to assess where we go next beyond 2020. Thank you for that, Brian. You know, when I look at all of this, some of the salient points, just to repeat those again, are, are really that Canada is broadly meeting its commitments as, as made to reach the $2.65 billion, that 97% of that seems to be going through multilateral channels. Um, a third of it um, is, you know, focused on adaptation, um, that um, a third of it is going towards uh, least developed countries. And we find ourselves with some really significant questions around uh, the focus on loans and repayable contributions versus grants, and which raises important, as you've just said, ethical questions. And I think really um, links to another question I have, which I think is unfortunately an area of, of confusion for uh, watchers of official development assistance. And that's really how much, if, if any, of all of this climate finance financing qualifies as official development assistance. Are you able to shed any light on that for our listeners? So the rules around ODA are very clear. And to the degree that climate finance is, um, is consistent with that purpose, concessional and directed to an ODA-eligible country, they, the donors are permitted to count that climate finance as ODA. And there's no question about that. And most donors do so. In fact, you know, probably 90% of the climate finance that's reported to the UNFCCC is, is money that's been counted as ODA. But there are a couple of issues here that I think we need to be aware of. One is that the rules around ODA are relatively clear. Yes, there's some controversy about some of them, but you know, we know them and more or less donors follow them. But that's not true for climate finance. So uh, there's still, uh, 10 years after Copenhagen, no clarity about what types of flows can be counted. This primarily relates to counting so-called clean coal, fossil fuel, basically, uh, as climate finance. And, and some countries like Japan continue to do that. There's also different practices that donors have about how they count climate finance. 
So there are two types of finance and climate finance, similar actually to what I just described for gender equality. There are projects where the purposes is 100% adaptation or mitigation. Those ones are clear. They should count clearly 100% climate finance. But then there are projects where only one objective is climate finance, among many objectives. Well, some donors count 100% of those projects as climate finance. Some count 50%. There's very different practices among donors. So when we looked at this, we said, well, you know, on average, probably a reasonable estimate might be 30% of the budget should count as climate finance. In fact, after we did that, I'm not sure there's a cause and effect here, but that's the percentage that Canada has adopted in its reports to the UNCCC. But this has a big impact at the global level. So in 2017, if you look at the total climate finance, there was about $27 billion that the OECD counted just on the basis of how countries reported. But if you use the 30% rule and change everybody's calculations according to just 30% of budgets where there's only one objective, that goes down to $18 billion. So you can see that the way climate finance is counted has a very dramatic effect on actually our performance. Canada, as I said, is a, a decent performer here. We also have good transparency on, on what we report as climate finance in our ODA, but also in our report to the UNFCCC. But where we have a problem is actually indirect in that much of the, the money goes to the multilateral development banks, as I said. And sometimes it's very difficult to get detailed information about what the various projects are being supported through that mechanism. The second question, which I think many people focus on quite rightly, is the question of additionality. In Copenhagen, we all, uh, countries all committed to new and additional predictable resources, new and additional. But what is new and additional? So I think most developing countries and CSOs interpreted new and additional as new and additional to prior and existing ODA allocations, particularly the commitment to the 0.7 target. But that's not the interpretation of donors. Canada, for example, interprets a new and additional as additional to its climate finance prior to 2009. So almost by definition, everything's additional in Canada's terms. But I think, you know, for developing countries, this point about new and additional is a very fundamental point of building trust in the climate regime. And, uh, you know, resources are critical for certainly the poorest countries, but for all developing countries in order to be able to respond to what is, I think, an un, uh, you know, uh, unprecedented global climate challenge. And so if we are constantly going to be fudging the rules and the numbers around climate finance, not really respecting this notion of additionality, we not only affect the trust that developing countries have to this regime and their own commitments to it, but we also quite practically affect the level of finance that is actually available for other purposes in, in development cooperation. Right now, that isn't such a big deal for Canada. Right now, only about 6% of our real ODA is climate finance, but this won't hopefully, uh, continue to be so because we need to actually ramp up our climate finance. 
and maybe we'll speak about it in a moment when we talk about the future, but we need to look at our climate finance in relation to our ODA when we talk about future projections. And, and this is a very important uh, dimension of, of this question of how climate finance relates to ODA. Thank you, Brian, for that and and really for highlighting also the many issues that um, exist with respect to counting climate finance. It's great to hear that Canada is doing fairly well on the transparency side of things, but it's also clear that there's a role here that perhaps Canada can play with respect to advancing greater coherence with respect to this counting of climate finance and establishing rules that can assist in the accountability that we all are looking for. So you're saying that Canada's contributions to climate finance account for about 6% of our official ODA. One would expect that given the urgency around the global climate crisis, Canada's expressed intention to lead on this file, that we might be able to see this percentage grow over the coming years. Um, Certainly that is something that I think we could make a very good case for and you already have here. Can you tell us perhaps just to wrap up what it is that you think Canada should be doing moving forward with respect to climate financing? Where do you see some of the areas of leadership for Canada? Well, I think uh, one of the important areas that follow just from our previous uh, question and discussion is the the issue of, of fair share. What is Canada's fair share of international climate finance? And, you know, there are several ways of looking at it. You mentioned at the front end that Canada is historically a very poor performer on greenhouse gases. And and so some uh, observers would use that as the metric for determining our fair share. I think that, you know, there are a number of technical and political issues involved in assessing that. And, and in my work, I've actually used an alternative metric. And that is one that's commonly used in development finance. And that's the share of Canada's gross national income relative to the gross national income of all donors. So this is our relative wealth against all donors in order to determine what level of finance we should be contributing relative to them. And and if you make that calculation, it's approximately 3.8%. So 3.8% of uh, global climate climate commitments belongs to Canada. If you take that measure and apply it to the $100 billion commitment, and I won't go into the details of that because it's uh, somewhat complicated, but the end result is that we should be contributing $1.8 billion annually starting in 2020. So this is against the $800 million that we committed to start to have dispersed in that year, less than half of what our fair share should be. So in looking at that commitment, what we say is that we should move towards our fair share. There's no way fiscally uh, responsible, a way at least, to get to uh, $1.8 billion annual disbursements immediately. So what we're suggesting is that we have a five-year plan and that by 2025, we be dispersing our $2.65 billion, or sorry, our our $1.8 billion, which is our fair share. Thank you, Brian. You really do uh, have a knack for running through the numbers, and, and it's really very helpful to hear you run, run through this for us. There's no doubt that um, it, it's helpful to have this view on where we are today and what we can do as a country to contribute to this 
such significant global uh, challenge that we have around climate change. It's great to see that Canada is moving forward on some of this. I think there's some um, really important insights that you've shared in terms of our uh, country's ability to meet its present commitments. But there's also really an obvious and significant importance to be focusing, as you've just concluded, on the bold action and leadership that Canada needs to demonstrate. And I think to be a global leader that really befits our ranking in Canada as one of the top 10 world economies, we really will have to be making these investments. You've laid out um, in this report, you know, clear suggestions and well-documented ones for a doubling of a contribution over the next five-year commitments. Certainly that's something I know you'll be watching for this year, as we will at CCIC as well. But really, Canada as a, as a leader, increasing uh, our contributions to ODA, helping developing countries adapt to climate change, and making those investments where they need to be, and being able to work within our borders here, as you've well concluded, in terms of helping to meet our agreed goals of keeping global temperatures and their rise to uh, 1.5 degrees over pre-industrial levels. I want to thank you, Brian, for joining us and for sharing your thoughts with us. Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed the opportunity and I hope uh, your listeners will have the opportunity to, to read the, the report and, and just to, to put in a good word for the Canadian Coalition for Climate Change and, and Development. On their website, there's a much shorter uh, version of, of many of the findings of the report. They've done a policy brief that uh, I think picks up on many of the points that we've discussed. So I appreciate the opportunity to share with your listeners some of these findings. Thank you for joining us for this special edition of Development Unplugged, produced by the Canadian Council for International Cooperation with support from Crestview Strategy.